Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 13. We are reading verses 1 through 21. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he's laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on, the, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would give us the help of your spirit to understand the teachings of your son. We're grateful that for all that our Lord Jesus has revealed and that you have given these parables to us for our understanding. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The dust over lower Manhattan had not even settled before accusations from the religious left and the religious right began to fly. For some Americans, the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001, 15 years ago today, was a manifest sign of God's judgment 
on American greed. It was a sign of God's judgment on American capitalism that has very little more moral guideline than the bottom line, that the profit margin is everything. This is why it happened, and it was deserved. It's the commentary of some. For other Americans, the terrorist attack was a manifestation of God's judgment, not because of the economy, but rather it was a judgment on America's loose sexual mores. This is why it happened, that we live in a culture that is sexually permissive. If it feels good, we do it, and so the judgment was deserved. But as the dust settled in Jerusalem, after the collapse of a tower along the southeastern wall of the city, near the water reservoir, Jesus doesn't encourage the crowds to search out the cause and effect of the situation. For Jesus, along with the Old Testament, he understood that there was chaos and disorder and disease and sickness that happened in the world, and at times that that happened due to a cause and effect relationship. But we also find in John 9 that Jesus understood that that was not always a one-to-one. There was no direct cause and effect oftentimes in life. The sickness, disease, and disorder, and chaos, and tragedy happens at times in the world simply because we live in a fallen and broken and busted place. And so significantly, Jesus doesn't even entertain the question, were these people who died... These people who died under that tower, were they worse sinners than all the rest of the people? Jesus refuses to go there in Luke 13. And rather, he senses a misunderstanding, a profound confusion. And so what he does in the next 21 verses, as recorded in Luke 13, is he addresses that misunderstanding about how God actually relates to his world. And he does it with three things. The first is this, is that he answers a question. And he answers the question to redirect our focus. You'll notice that there were two events. There were some Galileans, most likely revolutionaries. Jesus' home was known as a revolutionary hotbed. They had come to Jerusalem, and it says their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. This just simply means that they came to Jerusalem to offer the prescribed sacrifices in the temple, and they were killed by Pilate, most likely for revolutionary activity. It was one tragedy circulating in that ancient world. And then another tragedy, a tower fell and crushed 18 people. And so the people come to Jesus asking the question, were these people even worse sinners than everyone else? Jesus answers twice. Verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, what Jesus does is he turns this public tragedy into a moment of personal reflection. He takes the public moment of tragedy and asks you to take a personal inventory. 
Jesus wasn't asking the crowds to do the autopsy and figure out what the cause and effect relationship was. In fact, Jesus knew that that was God's specific territory. That was inside of God's decision and God's judgment, and we don't deserve to sit upon that throne. And so ours in that moment is not to cast judgment and say, yes, they were worse sinners. Rather, Jesus is redirecting our focus to reflect upon ourselves. Fifteen years ago, religious left and religious right got it wrong because Jesus would direct us to take care of our own house, to reflect upon our own ways. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He doesn't want us playing the comparative game. Are they worse sinners? That all sin was liable to judgment. And he wants us to ask the question, have we turned? Have we repented? Are we taking stock? Are we doing personal inventory? That all the rest is just a distraction. Perhaps sometimes convenient for us to focus on others so that we don't have to deal with God ourselves. And this is the first misunderstanding that Jesus seeks to correct. He wants to redirect our focus upon what our response to Him is supposed to be. But the second piece to this is He doesn't just answer a question. He tells a story. And He tells a story in order to affirm God's prerogative. He tells a story about a fig tree. Common story. Agricultural story. Listen to it again. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it is, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, this small parable has many condensed truths that we find strung together all throughout the Bible. And there's three things specifically that Jesus weaves in almost imperceptibly. And the first is that the vineyard belongs to God. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, anytime we see the imagery of a vineyard or a tree, this is normally with reference to God's people. And so God has a vineyard, and He allots a section of ground inside of His vineyard to this fig tree. Graciously and freely, He decides to give ground inside of His vineyard to this tree. That was His decision to do so. He's the owner of the vineyard. But the second thing that we learn is that God then expects a response from that tree that he has planted, that he has sovereignly and freely given the ground to, that he wants to see a produce and a yield, fruit coming forth from that tree. God has a claim on that tree that it would be productive towards his purposes. And the third thing we see, though, is that the owner of the vineyard threatens to remove the tree that the tree was not producing fruit for three years. He's patient. He actually gives it another year. But what the owner of the vineyard is doing in this moment of exercising judgment 
is it's his prerogative to preserve the vineyard. That he owns it. He created it. He made it. He allots the ground. And so he is the one who can then remove things that are not working in the stream of how the vineyard is to operate. That this alone is the prerogative of the, one, of the owner of the vineyard. Now today, we tend to be very allergic to any teaching like this. Teaching about God's judgment. Is that fair? How is that just? But what we find here in Jesus' creative parable telling of the, of the fig tree is that God's judgment is not some tit for tat where God is mad at you and He's seeking to get back for some little thing that you've done, some little indiscretion. What we learn here is that He's not capricious and His standards are not ill-defined, but rather He seeks a produce, reasonably so, out of His grace, He had planted the vineyard. Now He comes back for produce. He's patient with the vineyard. He manures the tree. He gives it opportunity to revive. But at some point, His claim says that the vineyard has to produce. That it has to be in accord with His purpose. And so what God will do is He will judge in order to preserve His good purposes for the vineyard. Earlier this summer, the Colson family went on vacation, and there had been a decent amount of rain all the way through late June. Yard was doing fine. I had turned the sprinkler system off. We left town for a couple of weeks, and when I drove back into the driveway, I discerned that that was a lamentable decision. I was expecting a letter from the Homeowners Association because the yard was dry. In fact, in certain places, it wasn't only dry, it was dead. Grass was gone, burnt. The afternoon sun was just simply too much. And I haven't quite figured out how to dial in growing St. Augustine grass. If you know, please let me know. <laughs> but one of the things that happened after the grass died was I noticed some strange blades growing up very quickly and rapidly and multiplying. In fact, in those areas where the grass had died, there were now weeds. There was crabgrass and nutweed and some different things that I don't even know that's very difficult to kill. But that's what happens when things that are supposed to be fruitful and bounteous and to have produce and make something beautiful die is that other things begin to grow. And when God says He will remove something from the vineyard, you need to know that it is His prerogative because He's seeking to preserve the beauty of creation, of what He wants, of what His purposes are. And so God's judgment is ultimately about salvation and purification. And so yes, many people find any teaching of God's judgment as something mean and vindictive, but it's just the opposite that God judges because His love demands it. That God's love and mercy in order to preserve the creation that's fallen into sin, in order to have a world that will be inhabited by His images in which they can live in and flourish, that God must remove evil. And that only comes through judgment. 
Otherwise, the weeds will grow. And Jesus is saying that one day that will happen. That account will come due. And so he tells that story in order to help us understand that that is God's prerogative. He's the owner. But finally, what he does in the midst of our misunderstanding is that he tells another story here in Luke 13. And it's a story to calibrate our expectations about the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. You'll note towards the end of, towards the middle of chapter 13, in verse 18 and verse 20, Jesus answers, asks the question and answers it, what is the kingdom of God like? And for people in his world, when they heard that phrase, kingdom of God, they knew just what that meant. That was referring to the end of time when God returned to Israel and made everything right. Isaiah had told them that God was going to come and wipe away the tear from every eye. That God was going to come and purify and purge the world. And that the faithful of God's people would be raised to new life, to live in a physical new heavens and new earth. And they would sing and they would dance and look with expectation towards that great coming day. The trick with Jesus is that he began announcing that the kingdom of God had drawn near. He was healing people. And he was doing some things that people couldn't deny. But they had a problem with him. And that problem was that it was just far too unimpressive. The kingdom of God was supposed to be the reordering of everything. And when they looked around, so much was still broken. Towers were still falling on people. People were still getting killed by Pilate. There were still people bent over with disability. How can the kingdom of God be present in Jesus if, all, if everything is still so messed up? That's the question that Jesus was facing. Note his answer. He tells two stories to explain what the kingdom or reign of God is like. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's recalibrating the expectations of the people. That they had actually had some wrong expectations about the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is something that will be planted in your midst. But it is imperceptible. Many will not see it. But it is also something that's invincible. That it will grow. And that it will come to an inevitable end. Where the birds of the air, and Jesus is there quoting from Ezekiel 17, speaking of every tribe and tongue and people of all the nations will be gathered in its branches and find refuge and rest. And so Jesus is at pains to say that the kingdom will be something that is among you and then there will be a progressive revelation and recognition of it. But it will start as something so small that many will miss it. 
that they'll fail to hear Jesus say, repent, respond to me. The manure is around the tree. All that you need is here and present and being made known. Repent and respond. But Jesus knew that not everyone would see it. That they would find His way unimpressive. Jesus healed a woman who was disabled. She was a woman who would have been despised. It would have been assumed that her disability was due to some sin. The cause and effect relationship was strong in the world of first century Judaism. But Jesus, you notice that she had been crippled for 18 years. How many people had died in the Tower of Siloam? 18. Jesus says, look, we don't know whether it was any fault of theirs. And he is communicating that we don't know if it's any fault of this woman either. But he has compassion on her. And she stands up straight. And Jesus is allowing us to see a piece of the kingdom. It's just a small little shadow that's being cast from something that is off in the future. And it's coming back to us. And in this little piece of the healing of a woman, we're seeing what God intends when the kingdom comes to full flower. That creation will be made right. Sins will be forgiven. Everything will be renewed. He's calibrating our expectations. And without faith, faith that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, something small and imperceptible, we'll miss it. I confess to you that I'm not a horse racing fan. I've had a few friends that have gotten quite into it. But from time to time on YouTube, I will watch one horse race. It's the 2009 Kentucky Derby. You may be familiar with it. The horse's name? Mind that bird. It's an incredible race. Halfway around the track, Mind that bird is eight lengths behind the main pack. The announcers barely even mentioned the horse. They said, Mind that bird is out of contention as we enter into the last part of the race. And then suddenly, Calvin Borrell, the jockey of Mind That Bird, begins to ride up the inside of the rail. The announcers are still focused as they come into the final turn and head down the straightaway. They're focused on the five horses at the head of the pack. And it was rainy that day, and it was a muddy mess, and there's material flying everywhere. And you see, Mind That Bird, if you're looking, you see him coming. And he steps in behind the five, and then all of a sudden, like a bolt of lightning, the horse is six lengths ahead of the entire pack, and the announcer doesn't even know the name of the horse. (laughs) Fifty to one odds for Mind That Bird in a major upset. Ends the race over six lengths ahead. It's incredible. An underdog. Something that no one saw coming. It was imperceptible. But it was this incredible power being exercised by the horse as it just blew away the field. And friends, the reason that that race resonates with anyone who watches it is because that is one of the truest stories about the world we live in. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's why it resonates. 
It's imperceptible. It's not seen. It's overlooked. It seems to be an underlog, an underdog. But Jesus, in death and resurrection, has established his kingdom. The seed is planted. And though imperceptible, there is an inevitable end that all from the nations, from every tribe and tongue who confess Jesus' name will find rest in the branches of that great tree. It will be a worldwide kingdom. His kingdom will know no end. That the sun will never set upon our Lord Jesus' empire. It will cover everything and everything will be right. And all the shadow of sin and its sadness and its crippling effects and the tragedy that everything that's brought into our world and our chief enemy, death, will be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. And so He tells us to stay in our lane. Don't concern yourself with the judgment of others. But ask yourself whether you are doing business with the King. Whether you are repenting and turning whether you see that the great end has invaded into the present and that there is a great end coming that you will be a part of if you find rest from your sins in that tree, in that vine, who is Jesus. Because friends, the King did come and He went down into death. And He did so in order to receive our judgment into His body. And in so doing, God passes over our sins because they are placed upon Jesus. But then in His resurrection, we can now find refuge from our sins. That Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. His right standing with God is now ours. And we can stand in the shade of the tree and find rest for ourselves there. This is how Jesus redirects the question were these worst sinners. Listen to His answer. Attentively care for it. And don't miss it. Don't miss the kingdom of God. Imperceptible as it may be. Grab it by faith. That's what our Lord Jesus wants. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we often operate with values that don't appreciate a mustard seed. That we like things big and impressive, and we forget what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. It's like leaven put into flour that wins the day. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. May we trust. And may we catch our faith up into Jesus, the one who bears the kingdom and brings it. Keep us from focusing upon the sins of others, and may we be conscious of our own repentance and standing before you. Help us to focus there. We ask for your grace and your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.